Hallelujah. What a Savior. That is, uh, that is my all-time favorite hymn. I didn't tell Alex that. That is my all-time favorite hymn. When, uh, if Jesus tarries his return, when they have my memorial service one day, they're going to sing that at my funeral. I love it. Thank you so much. And what a joy to be with a congregation that sings like they believe that Jesus is King. Uh, our family's been up here on the second row, and you have no idea how much your singing has blessed me today. So thank you. Uh, it's a joy to be here and, uh, and, and to worship with you today and to, I hope, serve you through the ministry of the Word. I love your pastor and his wife so much. Um, I am growing to, in a tolerant sort of way, appreciate his brother, <laughs> and it's just a joy to, to be here and worship with you today. Let me invite you to take a copy of God's Word and to turn to Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. And I don't know what your tradition is here at Emmanuel Church, but if you're physically able, let me invite you to let's stand together in honor of God and the public reading of His written Word. Titus 1, 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. For one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. We've worshiped you this morning through song and praise. We've worshiped you through prayer through reading your word, through giving. We pray now that you would help us to worship you through hearing and responding to your word. Our prayer this morning is that the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words would help us to rightly understand them and apply them to our lives for our good and for your glory 
And as the preacher this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So, I see you've been drinking the Kool-Aid. How many of you have heard that phrase before? So, I see you've been drinking the Kool-Aid. We hear this phrase sometimes as a description of a person who has uncritically bought into some idea, often kind of a suspicious idea that makes us nervous. So, I see you've been drinking the Kool-Aid. What you may or may not know this morning is that this phrase actually has a historical referent. How many of you have heard of Jim Jones and the People Temple? How many of you are old enough to remember that? Many of you are. Jim Jones, if you've not heard of him before, began his ministry as a minister in the Disciples of Christ denomination. But along the way, Jim Jones bought into what we would come to learn were cultish ideas, non-Christian ideas, heretical ideas. He led about a thousand of his followers out of the United States to a compound in Guyana, Africa. And in 1978, 909 of his followers and Jim Jones committed mass suicide by drinking Kool-Aid that had been laced with cyanide. It was the single largest civilian loss of life in American history before September 11th, 2001. While Jim Jones is a particularly notorious example, a man who for a season was a household name in American culture, most false teachers are far more subtle And many of them specialize in damaging the faith of church members and Bible-believing churches sometimes. All too often, sincere but shallow believers are duped into embracing heretical ideas, signing on with dangerous movements and tendencies, many of which claim to have a high view of Scripture would call themselves conservative or Bible-believing. And false teachers aren't some recent phenomenon that have come along in in the 19th and 20th centuries when we think about modern cults and, and, and alternative religions. They've been trying to undermine the gospel and to lead God's people astray since the earliest days of Christianity. As Titus chapter 1 verses 10 through 16 show us, Titus had to deal with false teachers among the Cretan Christians all the way back in the first century. I started to title this sermon, Why You Can't Trust Almost Anything You Watch on TBN, but I decided instead to title it, The Threat of False Teachers. And in this passage, we'll see that Paul teaches us two major truths about the threat of false teachers and how we, as followers of Christ, should respond to them. 
So it's not necessarily uh, the sunniest of topics. I know that uh, often when there's a guest preacher, it's, it's, a, it's a sunshine sort of sermon. But I think this is such an important word today. It's one of those perennial words. And I think it's something that we need to be reminded of. So we're going to talk about it this morning. So there's two different truths in this passage. And this is the first truth. False teachers are a serious threat to God's people. False teachers are a serious threat to God's people. Notice first in the text that false teachers promote dangerous doctrines. In the latter part of verse 10, Paul identifies these particular false teachers as part of what he calls the circumcision party. This is another way in his context of saying that they were professing Christians from a Jewish background. So they were uh, Jewish followers of Christ in their public profession. Now we can't know with absolute certainty what the false doctrines were that these teachers were promoting. But there are some hints in the text that I think can lead us to make some reasonably good guesses without saying hard and fast, this is absolutely what it was. If you look at verse 14, he says, "...the false teachers were devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth." So, whatever the dangerous doctrines are, they're almost certainly tied in some way to the Jewishness of the false teachers. There's some sort of background in that. And then according to verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing's pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now we'll return to this verse in a few minutes, but right now let's focus on the emphasis that Paul places on purity. Paul says here that purity is tied to belief and that unbelief results in defilement. Remember that one of the major components of the Old Covenant sacrificial system and civil statutes was to make one ceremonially clean, to be ritually pure. It seems at least likely that the false teachers in the Cretan churches were legalists of some kind. That they were arguing that this old covenant ritual purity remained binding, remained binding on new covenant followers of Christ. And, and that contradicts the gospel of free grace in Christ. That we still somehow need to go through certain ceremonies and trappings to be made clean so that we can approach God. It's the best guess that we can take from the text itself without just getting into outright speculation. Now, most contemporary churches probably aren't in danger of embracing legalistic forms of Old Covenant Judaism. That's probably not a living and active threat in, uh, in most churches today. But our day has its own dangerous doctrines that distract us from the good news of free grace in Christ. 
Some argue that the gospel is really about trusting God to bring about worldly prosperity, which He desires for all of His children. Just name it and claim it. Others, perhaps a little bit closer to home, argue that it's possible to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior in principle without bowing the knee to Him as the Lord and King of all things and of our lives. A growing number of Christians might have a right understanding intellectually about the facts of the gospel, but they totally divorce that from some of the greatest ethical questions of our age, especially the ones that touch upon things like who you can or cannot have sex with or marry, ignoring what Scripture teaches as well as 2,000 years of Christian moral reflection on those questions. Or some argue that Christianity is really about doing good, serving others, pushing back against injustice, and those are good things, but they have little to say about how we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And there are others who, maybe like these Cretan heretics, muddy the gospel with their lists of rights and wrongs and rules to be kept and rituals to be observed and They might be perfectly good rules and perfectly decent rituals, but they're based more on culture or tradition rather than what Scripture teaches. Friends, dangerous doctrines come in many different shapes and sizes. But at the end of the day, they all have in common this tendency to undermine the faith with what Danny Aiken, who's going to be here in a few weeks to preach at the Feed My Sheep conference, calls heretical math. They add to, subtract from, multiply, or divide something about the good news of Jesus Christ. Having hit on just some of the false gospels that we hear around us, let's be sure before we move on we know what the biblical gospel is. And there's a lot of different ways to summarize the gospel, but since we're in Titus, let's let Paul do it in Titus. So let me invite you to turn one page, or maybe scroll just a little bit lower, to Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Titus 3, 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy." by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the good news. And brothers and sisters, if anyone is teaching something different than this, they're proclaiming a false gospel. They're advocating a dangerous doctrine. But notice also that false teachers are often of questionable character. They are often of questionable character. If we look a few verses back on the other end of the bookend of this passage, Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, we see that Paul reminds Titus about the type of godly character that should be exemplified in the life of an elder. And part of Paul's instructions there includes this list of vices that elders are to avoid. He writes, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now contrast those verses with verses 10 through 16 where we find a laundry list of negative character traits associated with the false teachers on Crete that Paul is combating. In verse 10, Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. These particular false teachers were insubordinate. They were rebellious. They were not working within God-ordained authority structures in the church. Recently, a couple of months ago, I had a conversation with a religion reporter. And she was fascinated by what she called homegrown versions of Christianity. Those versions of Christianity that aren't closely tied to historical Christian traditions and that don't have any sort of meaningful connection to uh, different denominational structures. She is not a believer. She's a secular Jew. But even she recognized in our 45-minute conversation that there is something rebellious about a preacher who goes out and does his or her own thing and argues that they've figured out what everybody else has wrong. There's a reason that so many false teachers today begin their work, or at least when they move into false teaching, they transition their work into independent ministries. Maybe even independent ministries that you find primarily expressed through the television or through the internet. They are deceivers. They're deceivers. Paul says that here. They're deceivers, and this is a serious charge. Remember, Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 8.44 that the devil himself is the father of lies, the father of deceit. And then in the latter part of verse 11, Paul says the false teachers spread their false doctrine for shameful gain. 
Now, we don't know who in Crete was supporting the false teachers. We don't know how they were supporting them. All we know from this verse is that financial gain was a motivation of the false teachers. And friends, we see that today, don't we? We see it today. History has been filled with a long line of false teachers who have accumulated sometimes great prosperity by selling their bad doctrine to deceived people. And we see it today. We hear about sketchy ministers who own multiple mansions or sketchy ministers who fly around on private jets and sometimes start GoFundMe campaigns in their churches for better private jets. Or who have garages filled with luxury cars. And, and listen, there's nothing wrong with a big house in principle. There's, some people have the means to have a private jet. There's nothing wrong in principle with luxury cars. There are days I would love a Corvette. I would love a Corvette. I mean, it's fleshly. I'm not, there's nothing spiritual. I'm just telling you, they're beautiful. I would love a Corvette. These aren't bad things in principle, but we're rightly concerned when we see a spiritual leader begin to accumulate too much of this stuff, especially when we hear what he or sometimes she is saying and we're going, there's something not right about that. That doesn't sound like the good news. This is the spirit of the Cretan false teachers and that sort of false teacher today. And then in verses 12 and 13, Paul quotes from a Cretan philosopher named Epimenides to further drive home the bad character of these false teachers. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Now, there are a couple of things about this part of the passage that sometimes, I think understandably, make people squirm a little bit. So, we need to stay here for just a second. A couple of questions. First, is Paul claiming here that a pagan philosopher is really a prophet? Like in the same sense that biblical prophets are prophets? I mean, he calls them a prophet. So, is he saying this pagan philosopher is a prophet? No, he's not saying that. Paul is simply saying that what one pagan philosopher had to say proves true in this particular case. Now, if you think about this for a minute, we actually still do this sometimes in a very similar way in our own culture. Have you ever read or heard something that is insightful and true from an unbeliever and said something like this? Well, he turned out to be a prophet about that. Or she turned out to be a prophet about that. I think he's doing something similar here whenever he says that this philosopher is a prophet. As Calvin reminds us in his comments on this passage, quote, all truth is from God. And consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it, for it has come from God. Sometimes unbelievers get things right. And I think that's what Paul is saying here about Epimenides, that, that he got this right. He's like a prophet. Remember, Paul's a missionary, and he's doing here in written form the same thing he does verbally in Acts 17, where he 
tailors his message. He doesn't change the content, but he tailors his presentation to meet people where they are on their terms in a way that connects with them. That's what he's doing when he writes this letter. But there's a second question, and maybe it's the more troubling question in our current cultural context. Is Paul a racist because he agrees with the philosopher's sweeping condemnation of the Cretan people? Now, I get there are different definitions for racism that are floating out there, but at the bare minimum, racism is making sweeping assumptions about entire groups of people simply because they are a part of that group of people. So is Paul guilty of that? It's a fair question in the sense that it's an honest question if someone's asking it with an honest heart. But the answer is no. He's not a racist. Epimenides' proverb was so common in the ancient world, I almost never do this, but I'm going to tell you a Greek word. The Greek word for liar or cheater is kretazane, from which we get the word crete or cretan. Like it was widely understood in the ancient world that there were cultural issues in Crete that lent themselves to this sort of deceit. So while the philosopher may have been criticizing Cretan people in general, in the context of what Paul's doing here, I think what he's really saying is that this applies to these false teachers in Crete. That's what he's really saying. He's saying, you know that old adage about the Cretans? It's true of these false teachers. Because they are liars and cheaters. Because they cannot be trusted. These false teachers are living up to the stereotype. These guys are the quintessential Cretans. That's really what Paul's doing. And again, the point is to meet his audience on their terms in a way that they understand, tailoring how he presents the message without changing the content of the message, which he gets to in chapter 3 when he talks about the gospel. Paul isn't a racist. He isn't affirming a sweeping statement about Cretans, but he is saying it's true of these guys. These false teachers, these are bad dudes. You can't trust them. And in verses 15 and 16, he gives the false teachers a devastating diagnosis. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These false teachers, who are probably emphasizing ritual purity are the opposite of pure. Notice how strong Paul's language is. They're defiled and unbelieving. Nothing is pure to them, no matter how much they talk about purity. They claim to know God, but their actions deny it. They're walking, they're talking the talk, but they're not walking the walk. They're detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are false believers pretending to be Christian teachers. Now, I want to make a general observation 
So I need to give a caveat. Like all general observations, there are exceptions to what I'm getting ready to say. That's by definition why it is a general observation. So when I say this, you're going to say, but that's not true of so-and-so, and it may not be. But like all general observations, in my experience, what I'm getting ready to say, I have found it to be generally true. So here goes. It is often the case that theological drift is followed by revelations of moral compromise. It is not always the case, but it is often the case. And many times it turns out that the moral compromise was privately taking place before the theological drift became fully evident. That is often the case. I can't tell you how many times I've learned that somebody who has abandoned doctrines like the inerrancy of Scripture and penal substitutionary atonement and complementarian gender roles all along or shortly thereafter had some grievous sin in their life. Typically, sexual or financial in nature. Like that happens a lot. It's happened to people I know. It's happened in a couple of cases to people who at one time I would have called friends. Not my closest friends, but friends. I even followed a guy in a job, a leadership role, for whom this turned out to be his story after he left that leadership role. Again, I'm not saying this always happens, guys. But it happens enough that I am never surprised when someone distances themselves from orthodoxy and then I learn that they've had an affair and divorced their spouse or that they stole large amounts of money from a congregation or that they've come out of the closet as a homosexual. Generally speaking, there is often a close connection between false doctrine and sinful character issues that we see in people's lives. And then notice finally in this first big idea that false teachers prey upon the church. Paul says in verse 11 that the false teachers were upsetting whole families with their teaching. Now this might mean exactly what it says here in English, that entire families household units, nuclear families or extended families were being deceived by the wolves. It might mean that, and that's, that's bad. It's bad enough. But the word that the ESV, which I'm reading from, translates as families can also be translated as household. So it's just as possible that what this verse is saying is that entire house churches are being deceived. We do know that in Roman cities... The earliest Christians often gathered in house churches, and that might have been the case on the island of Crete. Now, at the end of the day, we don't know. Maybe Paul's talking about families. Maybe he's talking about house churches. But either way, the main point is the same. The wolves are preying on the sheep. The wolves are preying on the sheep. They're leading them astray. 
Friends, we need to remember that there is nothing cute or innocent or playful or amusing or whimsical or creative or clever about heresy. Eternity is hanging in the balance. But by God's grace, there are means He uses to protect His sheep from the wolves that seek to devour them. And that is the second truth that we see in this text this morning. Elders must protect the church from the threat of false teachers. False teachers are a threat. That's number one. And elders must protect the church from the threat of false teachers. Notice Paul says that elders must teach sound doctrine. Let's look at the two verses that sandwich our main passage today. If you look up at verse 9 of Titus chapter 1, Paul says that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And then look at Titus chapter 2 verse 1. He says something very similar. But as for you, Titus, you elder, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Elders are to be men who understand biblical doctrine and are able to effectively communicate that doctrine to God's people. When Timothy talks about this in Timothy chapter 1, excuse me, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, he calls it being apt to teach. If we were up here on the screen to take the biblical qualifications of elders or pastors and to, uh, from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 and kind of put them all up there, what you would find is that almost all of them are traits and tendencies that should characterize any maturing Christian man. Like it's just general, this guy walks with Christ and is growing and is trustworthy sort of stuff. The single ability that not all Christians, men or women, possess, but that must characterize an elder is the ability to teach God's Word faithfully to God's people. That is the key difference between a mature man who is a role model in every way and a mature man who is a role model in every way who is qualified to be an elder, being apt to teach. Now, some of you are here today, and you are elders in this church, or you're a visiting elder from another church. Some of you might aspire to one day be elders. Let me speak to you, brothers, for just a minute. You need to be men of prayer and the Word. First and foremost, men of prayer and the Word in your role as elder. You need to spend a considerable amount of time studying the Bible and learning sound doctrine so that you can teach it to whomever God entrusts to you, whether that's right now in this church or in some other church or whether it's in the near future whenever you're set apart to be an elder. And now I want to speak to everybody in the room who is not an elder and especially those who are members of Emmanuel Church. I want you to listen closely. The most important way that your elders lead you is through their individual teaching of the Word 
and their collective safeguarding of the church's overall teaching ministry. That is the most important way that they lead you as a congregation. And you need to give them the space to spend adequate time prayerfully studying the Scriptures, as well as studying other non-inspired but helpful works that help them to understand the Scriptures and to communicate that to other people. I've had a lot of conversations in the DePrima house this week about plagiarism in pastors. I want to spend too much time on that, and we're not talking about your pastors, by the way. But some of you know what we're talking about. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that so many men are tempted to become pastoral plagiarists, besides just their own sinful hearts, which is enough, but one of the contributing factors is a model of pastoral ministry that says preaching and teaching is just this thing that pastors do, but all this other stuff matters so much more. And so you find men who are looking at, you know, 40 or 50 hours of, of like work week saying, how can I prepare a sermon and maybe something else in, on this Thursday afternoon? And when you do that, there is a temptation to cut corners. And when there's a temptation to cut corners, you might just find yourself plagiarizing other people's sermons. Church, you've got to give these brothers the space to spend adequate time in the Word, to stand up here or to meet with you at a coffee shop or to be in a small group or whatever and to open that Word and explain it in a way that's helpful to the congregation. It is the most important thing that they do. Now, most of you here in this room don't aspire to be a pastor, but I would argue that these same principles apply to some degree to every believer. Hear me out on this. Maybe you help to lead a small group. Maybe you serve this church as a deacon. Maybe you're trying to be the godliest mom or dad that you can be. Maybe you're someone's accountability partner. Maybe you're simply a committed church member who wants to be used to be a blessing to other people in this church and to people outside this church. Whatever your particular context, if you're a follower of King Jesus, you are part of His royal priesthood, and you've been gifted for kingdom service. And that means you need to care about sound doctrine. And you need to be on the lookout for bad doctrine. And you need to grow in your ability to recognize good back doctrine and bad doctrine. And to encourage in good and discourage away from the bad. But notice also that elders don't just teach good doctrine. We're thankful they do. But they confront false teachers. In verse 9, Paul says elders must rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. In verse 13, he says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Protecting God's people not only means commending sound doctrine, but it means protecting the sheep from dangerous doctrines. And sometimes that means calling a spade a spade when it comes to false teachers. Elders must do this, as Paul says, so that God's people... and Sometimes by God's grace, the false teachers themselves might repent 
and be sound in the faith. A number of years ago, almost 15 years ago now, our family was worshiping in a large Southern Baptist church that we have some extended family ties to. And the pastor of the church at that time was uh, going into great detail in a very helpful way, criticizing some of Joel Osteen's teaching. The book, Your Best Life Now, had just been published. Osteen was all over TV. And the pastor was criticizing the content of the book and the content of the sermons, but he never said Joel Osteen's name. After the service, I spoke with the pastor, and I told him that I deeply appreciated everything that he had said, but that he should have publicly named Osteen. Because this was a big church of almost a thousand attenders. And chances are there were at least some in the church who were watching Osteen on television or who were buying his number one bestseller that you could even get at Walmart and Target because it was such a bestseller. And they were probably convinced that he was perfectly orthodox because like almost every false teacher, he does say some good things sometimes. And he smiles. That toothy smile is so winsome. That pastor said, brother, I appreciate this, but I just don't want to offend anyone by naming names. And my response to him was that he is a shepherd, and Osteen is a wolf, and that he has an obligation to warn his sheep who the wolves are. Now, I know we have to be careful about this. We have to be careful about this because not all bad doctrine is equally dangerous. It's just not. As I personally understand the Scriptures, doctrines such as infant baptism, female pastors, private prayer languages, and the idea that true believers can fall from grace are all false doctrines. But I know godly people who believe those and who teach those doctrines. Like they, they think the Bible teaches that. Now, I honestly believe, based on my study of Scripture, that every one of those views are unbiblical in the strictest sense of the term. The Bible doesn't teach them. But none of them are damnably incorrect heresies, like rejecting the Trinity or denying the blood atonement, or arguing that Jesus was just a man, or denying the bodily resurrection, or believing that we somehow earn our salvation by what we do. We have to have a category for bad doctrine that doesn't send people to hell. And that helps us to understand when we call out who the wolves are. Many of you know who Al Mohler is, and you may be familiar with his really helpful analogy of theological triage, where he talks about the difference between first and second and third order doctrines. Some of you have heard this before. First order doctrines are the core claims of Christianity, the stuff you have to believe to be a Christian, and if you don't believe it, you're not a Christian even if you say you are. Stuff like the Trinity the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the blood atonement and the bodily resurrection. And then there are second-order doctrines, 
the sort of different convictions that lead to different denominational traditions. The reason that Baptists aren't Methodists, aren't Presbyterians, aren't Charismatics. Things like baptism, how you structure church leadership, whether miraculous gifts continue or not, and which ones that applies to, uh, gender roles in the church and the home. And there, there are third order doctrines. Those sorts of theological convictions that honest Christians can disagree about, but normally can still be part of the same church and live in relative peace with the disagreements. Stuff like the rapture in the millennium, or maybe the extent of the atonement or the age of the earth or something like that. Now, this is not some slam dunk or silver bullet or magic formula that clarifies everything because sometimes we're going to disagree about especially which doctrines are tier two and which ones are tier three. And so some of you may feel much stronger about speaking in tongues or the age of the earth or what, and put it in a different place. It's not perfect, but in general, it helps us to understand the difference between the sort of things that are just wonky doctrine that we disagree with and, and, and we think for good reasons that we disagree with and the stuff that sends people to hell, the stuff that's taught by false teachers. Not every Christian leader who is wrong, even about important stuff, is a wolf which is why anyone entrusted with a teaching role in the church, whatever that looks like, but especially elders, must always navigate incorrect doctrine with a charitable attitude toward those who are wrong, but they're not false teachers. And it takes skill sometimes that comes with age and wisdom and knowledge of the Scriptures to be able to tell the difference. But elders, again, and anybody else with a teaching role in the church, listen closely. When you see a wolf and you know that they're a wolf, out the wolf for the sake of the sheep. Because heresy is a matter of eternal life versus spiritual death. And the sheep have to know who the wolves are. As we move to close, I want to urge everyone in this congregation, whether you just went through a new membership class or whether you were here for the Genesis 1-1 of Emmanuel Church, if you're a part of this congregation, be on guard against false teachers. They are everywhere around us. And again, especially in an age where it's not just radio like it was two generations ago, and it's not just television like it was a generation ago, but now it's the internet and it's podcasts and it's websites and false doctrine is everywhere. And so all of us need to be on guard against false doctrine. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to confirm that what they were hearing was true and that it lined up with truth. Let me say to the elders one more time, be diligent men of the word who are striving to protect the sheep from the various types of wolves who come in different shapes and sizes and species 
who are trying to infiltrate the church and devour the sheep. Let me say to everyone who's a member, as part of this community of disciples, commit to teaching others and encouraging others to think rightly about God and His world for the sake of living rightly before God in His world, which can only come from knowing God's Word. It's the only place to adjudicate these questions. So be a people of the Word. Be a community of the Word as you follow King Jesus together. And if you're here today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you have never bowed the knee to King Jesus, the most important thing that you can do today is not to leave this place before you turn from your sins and trust Him alone as the King of your life. And if you want to know more about what that means, I know these elders or me would love to talk to you after this service today about that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much that in a world filled with a Baskin-Robin assortment of false teaching, that you've given us your word, that you've given us the gift of elders, that you've given us the gift of other teachers in the church. Lord, may we be on guard against false doctrine. May we be diligent for sound doctrine. And may we be this way not so that we can win debates or so that we can be on the right team, but for the sake of the gospel, so that men and women might be saved, so that the good news might be proclaimed, and so that Jesus might be shown to be King of kings and Lord of lords, even as we anticipate that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses this to be the case. To the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.